Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Welcome to Sacred Nine Project Podcast. We have two concerts on the horizon. The first is on February 7th at noon. It is a musical satire on Christian nationalism in which a boy band is hired by the United States government to proselytize at secular institutions. For more information, visit sacrednine.com slash DMS. That's D-M for Mary, S as in Samantha. By the way, all songs are from Watts's Divine and Moral Songs for Children. Speaking of Dr. Watts or Isaac Watts, on March 10th, we will present our yearly choral program entitled 350 Watts. His output was electric. Get it? Anyway, he's turning 350 next year, and we have his own texts and that of people he influenced, like Emily Dickinson and William Blake. I had a wonderful conversation with Chris Fenner for our episode today. Our jumping-off place was an Epiphany hymn, Brightest and Best of the Sons of the Morning. And tomorrow is Epiphany. However, the bigger objective for me was the opportunity to geek out with a real live hymnologist. Chris's knowledge is vast, and he was so generous with his time and insights. By the way, beloved Henry the Beagle made an appearance in this episode. He was trying to express his views on hymnody, but I never gave him the mic. That was really rough. My true evil plan for the episode was to engage Chris in a discussion about how hymns get changed over time. I have looked thoroughly through hundreds of old hymnals, and one thing is certain, the hymns in your hymnal almost certainly did not start the way they appear there. Some changes are innocuous. For example, in the original Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, the penultimate verse ends with, Take my heart, O take and seal it, seal it from thy courts above. As in, God is sitting in the throne and sealing our hearts from that place. But you see how that might sound like God is putting up a wall and keeping us from his courts above. That's why I think from is changed to for, seal it for thy courts above in modern and in very early hymnals also. Another way hymns are changed are the omission of original verses. Come Thou Fount is also an example of that. The verse I mentioned is usually the last verse of this hymn, but in the original there is a closing verse about blood-washed linen. Intrigued? Other changes have to do with editors grappling with doctrinal issues, as we will see in our discussion. My name is Chris Fenner. I'm digital archivist at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. First, we talked about two topics that have been mentioned multiple times on this podcast. The first is the fine line between witnessing and othering, as evidenced in many early hymns. When, when there's this thing called the Great Commission, where is the the line between like a white European coming to a barbarian nation or what have you? Isn't that what they're supposed to do? And it, it, it's that weird tension between a benevolent, what feels like a benevolent act to an unsaved person versus the white savior that might come in and maybe sort of, you know, take a few natural resources while we're here or whatever. Oh, well, I, I suppose it, in some ways, it comes down to a matter of perspective and a matter of attitude. Uh, because like you said, uh, all Christians are encouraged by the Great Commission uh, to go and to reach other people. I, I, think, I think the importance there is recognizing um, for, for people in any nation who decide to go, I think the first step is recognizing there are lost people among, you know, among ourselves, right? So if we can start by recognizing there are lost people here, you know, they're not just, you know, somewhere else and we need to go get them, then I think that's the first step of humility to recognize, you know, that this isn't just us being great and those other people being lost. Uh, there are lost people among us, and yet we still are called to go. And, uh, and to go beyond our own borders. Next is my own 
evangelism for this era of hymns. I have to say, um, this era of hymns are my absolute favorites, the late 1700s and the early 1800s. They are not to be beaten because the whole verse about, you know, jewels from the mountain, gold from the mine, that just the craftsmanship of those words is just stellar. And, and it, it, it contrasts, I mean, I like a lot of the old, um, the later 18th, 19th century hymns too, like um, Softly and Tenderly. Love that hymn. But the words just of the two eras to me cannot even be compared because, you know, when you get later in the 19th century, it starts to get really florid and really sort of, ah, you know, but <laughs> there's something, there's something gritty. There's something no nonsense of but still while being eloquent about this era. So I'm just, that's just my own geeking out about it. Yeah, it, it is a great era. The 1700s, early 1800s, there was a lot of really great poetry happening, um, great craftsmanship, as you say. So I, I agree with that. There, there are still writers who, um, even into the 20th century, were writing um, really nice poetry at that level. But I think it, it gets less attention because like you say, of, of the uh, emergence of the gospel hymns of the late 19th century, um, which are more experiential and a lot less, um, they're, they're more about, about conveying a, a testimonial message and, and less about um, writing at, with great craftsmanship and um, appealing to um, deeper senses of, of doctrine and so forth. No, I, I I like the way you frame that because nobody I've never heard anybody say it quite like that before as a kind of maybe reason why they're they're different. I just think about it as a trend, but I wasn't thinking too clear, clearly about what the trend was that started to happen with the you know more experiential stuff. But thank you for that perspective. Okay, now for the hymn that is the origin of our conversation. Let's listen to me singing Brightest and Best from Southern Harmony, where the hymn is known as Star in the East. By the way, I have raised the sixth in most cases, giving it the Dorian modal feel of this genre, as opposed to the natural minor that is written. Some experts assert that people at, the, at that time in certain regions would have naturally done that. For example... Hail the blessed morn, see the great mediator, as opposed to the natural minor, which is Hail the blessed morn, see the great mediator. Hail the blessed morn, see the great mediator. Down from the regions of glory descend. Shepherds go worship the babe in the manger. Lo, for his God, the bright angels attend. Brightest and best of the sons of the morning, Dawn on our darkness and lend us thine aid. Star in the east, the horizon adoring. Guide where our infant redeemer was laid. Cold on his cradle, the dewdrops are shining. Low lies his bed with the beasts of the stall. Angels adore him in slumbers reclining. Wise men and shepherds before him do fall. Brightest and best of the sons of the morning, Dawn on our darkness and lend us thine aid. Star in the east, the horizon adoring. Guide where our infant redeemer was laid. 
say, shall we yield him in costly devotion, odors of Eden and offerings divine, gems from the mountain and pearls from the ocean, myrrh from the forest and gold from the mine. Brightest and best of the sons of the morning, dawn on our darkness and lend us thine aid. Star in the east, the horizon adoring, guide where our infant Redeemer was laid. Vainly we offer each ample oblation, vainly with gold we his favor secure. Richer by far is the heart's adoration, dearer to God are the prayers of the poor. Brightest and best of the sons of the morning, dawn on our darkness and lend us thy name. Star in the east, the horizon adoring, guide where our infant Redeemer was laid. So the jumping off place today is um, brightest and best. And do, do you like the hymn? Do you like it? I, I do like the hymn. I, I can't say, um, in, in my own experience, um, growing up and being raised in the church, I, I don't remember ever singing this as a child. And, and even now, I don't even think that hymn is familiar to the people in my congregation. I, I don't think I've ever used it in my congregation. So, so yes, I like it. I, I think it's a very nice hymn, um, but I don't have a personal acquaintance with with using it myself. The main thrust of what I want this episode to, to talk about is how hymns get altered. And then, and this is a brightest and best as an example, because I think there are two instances in which this hymn, at least two instances, maybe more. And, well, I can think of three that this hymn has been altered. A, I think the original words were brightest and best of the sons of the morning, which got changed to stars of the morning at some point. Can you give us some maybe reasons why that was changed, at least for some, you know, compilers or what have you? It can potentially be problematic because of a verse in Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, where it says, um, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. So, um, so at least in that sense, um, that phrase "son of the morning" can refer to angels, or mo- specifically this particular fallen angel, Lucifer or Satan. So you, you might imagine why some hymnal editors would say, "Yeah, maybe we shouldn't be putting this idea in people's heads of singing this hymn and and them thinking we're, we're singing about fallen angels or angels in general or or even Satan." So in order to be abundantly clear, um, that phrase will often get changed to say brightest and best of the stars of the morning, because the hymn is, uh, it, it is about the Bethlehem star. And, and I think any reasonable person going through this hymn would understand it's about the Bethlehem star. Um, nevertheless, I, I think sometimes editors, they, they just don't, they just want to be clear. They want to be clear about language. So people don't have these um, point, potential points of confusion. Another change I noticed was that I know in Southern Harmony, it's um, odors of Eden and not odors of Edom. And I, I think there's something about Edom being associated with Esau, which was a kind of a persona non grata in, 
in the Bible. Do you have anything to say about that? That that phrase comes with this uh, traditional understanding of the land of Edom. As you say, um, it, it's the land of the descendants of Esau. Um, but but the, the, the purpose of that reference has to do with their history in um, exporting things like salt and balsam. And balsam in particular is used in perfumes and in incense. So that's what that's what the reference means. It's referring to this land where where people would get this um, fragrant material. And speaking of that phrase, uh, yeah, the original says odors of Edom, um, but that is often changed because the word odor these days is often often carries a negative connotation, right? So sometimes hymnal editors will will change that to say fragrance of Edom, which which paints I in modern terms, paints a little bit nicer picture. Yeah, and but that, that just kind of goes back to my original uh, thesis about th- this era of hymns. It was, you know, maybe it didn't have a negative, con- I guess it wouldn't have had a negative connotation then, but the word odors of Eden just is more just direct and earthy and delicious to me, you know, as opposed to, to, to trying to, you know, pretty it up by saying fragrance. But in any case. Yeah, well, that's the challenge. That, that's the challenge of being a, a, a hymnal editor and the challenge of using old hymns in modern contexts uh, because language changes. And that, that's, that's just the reality of how things work. Um, some words people used 300 years ago, they don't quite mean the same thing now. So, so as, as, uh, as editors or even as uh, music directors, worship leaders, uh, we sometimes have to be mindful about how language uh, has evolved over the last 300 years, 400 years. And then we need to start sometimes asking tough questions. Will my people understand this term? Will my people understand this phrase? And if 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 the answer is, and this this is very subjective, but if the answer is, I don't think people will understand this, or I think people might understand this better if we tweaked this word or changed this word, then sometimes that's the the better pastoral thing to do. The third thing I noticed a change, although it's not um, a change of the words, is that in Southern Harmony and even before in tune books, the brightest and best got placed as a, as a refrain or as a chorus. And I think that's, um, I, I don't, I don't, Maybe it was just kind of a fun thing to do for them. I don't. I don't know if there was any kind of liturgical reasoning for it. Do you have any information on that? Yeah, that, that is a really interesting development, and that happened early in the nineteenth century, where that that first stanza got set aside and and used as a refrain in that hymn, and then um, and then a new a new first stanza was inserted, it, which which starts "Hail the blessed morn when the great mediator." Well, that that those lines are not by Reginald Heber. Oh no, I, I didn't think know that. Knows. No, um, do we know who it, it's by? As far as I know, I don't think anyone knows. I I think, that, I think that's part of the question, um, and maybe this escaped me in my research, but uh, but those hymns started a, a, appearing anonymously. Um, with this hymn, in uh, the earliest I've seen is 1823 in a collection called Brick Church Hymns, made for the Brick Presbyterian Church in New York City, and that's where we first see early, the earliest I've seen of of that opening stanza, those opening lines um, taking place of the original opening stanza, and then that original opening stanza being set aside as a refrain. Very interesting development. Um, there, there is, um, there, there was a movement at the time, especially in in revivals and camp meetings, to to do things like this, to insert, um, in, insert refrains into hymns that started to become a thing around this time period. So, in a way, that's it's not surprising to see. Um, text being used as a refrain like that, but it is a little unusual to have that entire first stanza be rearranged like that. Yeah. Um, about that, now in my my own digging and research, I think I understand it correctly when I say 
that when these this trend came about creating refrains, it was kind of a twofold thing. Revivals and tent meetings, and it was it was a way for people to participate without having to have a hymn hymnal to to read from. And also it was somehow for the more unlearned people in a church or in uh, in a camp meeting so that, you know, they could at least, you know, cause, you know, because the words then were, were quite um, sophisticated. And, you know, if there was a refrain, it's something you could kind of like just latch on to. Am, am I being unfair? Oh, I, I think that's a fair assessment. Um, you know, certainly if, uh, if, if people are, singing together in a congregational setting where not everyone has a book or not everyone has the words in front of them, then, then yeah, when that refrain comes around, that's when everybody can jump in and sing the refrain. Uh, so it, it makes a lot of sense. Then we spoke about the book project he is working on. I have to say, I love your, uh, I love your publication. I mean, I guess it's going to be published, but I, I loved looking through what a thorough and well thought out uh, document. How long has it taken you to put that together? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so this is my uh, upcoming publication. It's currently titled Hymns and Devotions for Daily Worship. I've been working on this for a little, little over a year, maybe about 14 months um, since last October. And it's going to have, it, it's a daily reader. So it's going to have 366 hymns and each hymn will have commentary and each hymn is um, set to music. So it's not just the words. This will be something a musician could um, could play from like a hymnal. Um, so right now I'm up to number 278, I think. So I have fewer than 100 left to go. Uh, but I'm speaking in terms of um, engraving the music and selecting the hymns. I don't have all the commentary in place yet. That that's a little bit, um, a little bit more challenging, uh, because the commentary is going to come from several different sources. In some cases, um, I've been able to include commentary from the writers of these hymns. So, for example, just just recently, I I added the hymn "Take My Life and Let It Be" by Frances Ridley Havergal. Um, well, she wrote a book based on her own hymn. And so I was able to to draw uh, a segment from that book where where she is um, offering commentary on on her hymn. So that kind of thing is really unique. There's nothing like it on the market. I have uh, examples of that from writers like Martin Luther, um, uh, you know, describing his own theology and his own approach to. Uh, some of his hymns, um, there will be commentary from other hymn writers like Charles Wesley or Charles Spurgeon. Um, basically, anything I can do to have some of these hymn writers um, use their own voice to speak to their own works. So that, I think, will be tremendous. And then for the other hymns for which that kind of thing does not exist, uh, I've been asking other hymn scholars uh, to write about these hymns, uh, other pastors, um, and, and even and even some living hymn writers, uh, I, I think this will be a great living document when it's finished because some of the hymns I'm, I'm including are by living hymn writers, and I've been reaching out to these hymn writers to say, will you write 250 words about uh, of commentary about your hymn? So these, these people get to speak for themselves and speak to their own work. I think that'll be really tremendous. Next, we talked about various hymns in his project that have undergone changes of some kind. By the way, we started by talking about the original last verse to Amazing Grace versus what has evolved as the last verse of Amazing Grace. The former is, The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the stars forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. The latter is, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So I went through, uh, I just kind of scrolled through, and I saw what hymns that you included that 
had that I had thought about before in this context of changing things. I was so delighted in your your hymn 215 that you you did the quote original six verses of Amazing Grace and put the earth d- dissolve like snow verse instead of the 10,000 years verse at the end. So right. kudos to you. I mean, that's such a great <laughs> verse that one never hears. Oh, I know. It, it's a great text. And, and really, it's a shame. Uh, it, it has been lost to time, except it got it got reclaimed by Chris Tomlin when he did it. And I, I, th- I think I think his version drew more attention to the original text. Uh, but yeah, in, in hymnals that, you know, the, the last two stanzas usually get cut off and then replaced with that extra stanza when we've been there 10,000 years, which is not part of the original. It got added on later by uh, by different editors. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, my very first Sacred Nine project, I had both Amazing Grace and When I Can Read My Title Clear from, from Southern Harmony that I arranged. And as I recall, the last verse of Title Clear is the 10,000 the, the, the 10, years verse. The same one from Amaz- the Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shiny. Yeah, that's when I can read my title clear. So I, and that's, a, that's Isaac Watts. So I'm going to have to go back to my 1708 or whatever it is, um, hymns and spiritual songs to see if he in fact wrote 10,000 years. Do you know anything about that? Well, uh, Isaac Watts did not write those words. I'll, I'll tell you that much. Um, those words did not, they're not known to exist prior to uh, until about 1790. And that's, that's when they, they, the earliest known publication of those words was in 1790. And they appeared with a, a another hymn altogether called Jerusalem, my happy home. Um, and, and it, it became like this, um, how do I say, like, oh, oh, in, in the uh, camp meeting tradition, people throw around the term uh, wandering camp meeting refrain, which is where these refrains get attached to different hymns. Uh, and in essence, the stanza became like this wandering thing where it, it, it kept getting uh, moved around to, to other hymns. And so, yeah, it started out its life being attached to the hymn, Jerusalem, My Happy Home. And then it's been attached to some other hymns and eventually it got attached to Amazing Grace. And that's kind of where it stuck, but it didn't start that way. Hymn 225 in your publication, Rock of Ages. Now, this is one that just gets me going because you can see in Southern Harmony, it's Rock of Ages, Shelter Me. You have cleft for me, rent for me. What do you think is going on there? Uh, well, that, that's the original opening line, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. That's the way Augusta's top lady wrote it. Um, I guess your question is, why would people change it to say shelter me? Yeah. Um, of course, the idea of um, the, the, the term Rock of Ages uh, refers to Jesus. And then, uh, and then the next part, cleft for me. It refers to um, Jesus being on the cross and, and and having his side split open. So that that's that's the image there, right? It's supposed to re- represent Jesus on the cross, you know, with the wound in his side. Um, so that that's the original image. Now, why would people change that to say "shelter me"? I, I, honestly, I'm not really sure why people do, would do that. Yeah, and that's kind of an early. Well, Southern Harmony is 1835, so at least there you've got shelter me. Now, the other interesting thing about this one is the end of the last verse. Southern Harmony says, when my eye strings break in death, which is just eek, gross, okay? <laughs> but then, of course, then then they, it gets changed. It gets kind of sanitized to when my eyes shall close in death or things like that. Now, I'm going to guess that the eye strings was the original top lady. Is that true or do you know? Yes, the original says, when my eye strings break in death. And I, th- I think, um, I've written about this on my website, and I believe the, the idea was, that of course, it, it refers to the eyelids, and I think there was this old idea or old concept of, uh, I don't know whether, whether they thought it was referring to muscles or tendons or whatever, but, but this idea of... Um, eyes not being able to open anymore but that's an old phrase and uh i I mean to me i i can i can understand why editors 
change that to say when my eyelids close in death because it's just easier to understand. The church is one foundation. It's 238 in your publication. In my, you know, in my background, or not as a Baptist, we never sang this in my Baptist church, but when I started working for the Presbyterian church and whatnot, we, we would sing this a lot, and I love this hymn so much. And then um, the way I used to know it was, um, like them, the meek and lowly on high may dwell with thee. And you see different versions of that. You can see... Um, Oh, in our Methodist hymnal now, it's may live eternally, which is just kind of vapid, you know, really compared to on high may dwell. It has a whole different feeling. But now the fourth verse here starts with, oh, happy ones and holy. Lord, give us grace that we like them, the meek and lowly on high may dwell with thee. Good. And then it ends there past the border mountains where in sweet vales the bride with thee by living fountains forever shall abide. I've never heard that. The lines there past the border mountains where in sweet vales the bride with thee by living fountains forever shall abide. Yes. Yeah, those lines are part of the original. Usually what 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 the, the hymn ends with is the first two lines of that verse. Oh, happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we like them, the meek and lowly on high may dwell with thee. And somehow they, people just kind of put it out of order and then kind of just lost that whole border mountains part, which I think is so interesting. But, but there again, that, that's, that's part of what I do in my work is I try to go back and reclaim those original lines as best as I can. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. We've got this last verse, which really chaps me. I'm not going to lie. So the one that the most traditional words that I know are, Father, this is not from your um, from your publication, but this is just one that it was I wanted to talk about. Father, love is reigning o'er us. Br- brother, love binds man to man. So, of course, I, I, it has to be for the reasons of creating more gender inclusive language. People have just butchered this one to death. So you get love divine is reigning o'er us, leading us with mirth, mercy's hand. Ugh, God's. Um, God's own love is reigning o'er us, joining people hand in hand. Ugh. Love divine is reigning o'er us, binding all within its span. That's my current Methodist hymnal, that last one. So, you know, what do you think about this? I mean, it's clear that it's about gender-specific pronouns and things. <clears throat> so, or, or language. So, what do you think about this notion of changing whole, you know, phrases of poetry in the service of gender inclusivity. What do you think about that? I I think generally it's a good idea when it can be done well. And sometimes that's the trick. Um, Because I I understand and I I support, uh, uh, to me, I try to think of it from the perspective of, of women in my life um, who are dear to me and how difficult it must be for them to, to, to read something or to sing a hymn and for the language to be exclusively masculine as, as though they're not included in this. Right. Um, so from, from that perspective, I, I see that. And in, in my own work and in my own book I'm developing, I try to be mindful of that and uh, try to reduce that kind of masculine language as much as I can, wherever it's sensible to do that. Um, but yeah, like you said, sometimes it, it can get tricky uh, just in terms of being able to offer a reasonable substitute without completely butchering the poetry. And, and that becomes the, del- the delicate balance in, in terms of being able to do that. Yeah, I think what happens is that some of the people that they put in charge of writing, rewriting some of it, they, they don't put themselves back in the sensibility of the time so that what, what it gets replaced with sounds really vapid and really trite. Yeah. That, and, that, and that's something I, I wrestle with, with this book because I, I'm trying to do the same thing. Um, and, and as much as I want to use the original texts and authentic texts, uh, I mean, the reality is uh, quite often um, these, these issues pop up where, you know, I am trying to minimize that that kind of language, but then it becomes incumbent upon me to figure out how to do it well. 
And sometimes those choices are obvious, you know, where uh, one term can be swapped out for another relatively easily. But then other other examples uh, like that hymn, and I, I, I do intend to add that hymn to my collection um, at some point. It'll be later on in the book. And that's that's a line I'm going to have to grapple with, and I'm, I'm going to have to decide, well, you know, which which alteration would I choose? And and so for that, you know, I'm going to do like like what you've done and try to consult some other hymnals to see how other editors have approached it and try to get a sense of, you know, which alteration um, works the best without being too conspicuous and without damaging the poetry. Yeah. So in these cases, do you ever take a stab at it or do you always try to find one that's already existing? Most of the time I, I try to do it myself uh, because I, I I do work from the original text. And so my first instinct is to say, well, can I fix this myself? How easy or how difficult would it be for me to fix this myself? And if I if I get to a point where I'm stumped or I think, gosh, I don't know how I want to approach this, then I might consult another hymnal to see, well, what have other editors done? And um, there have been times when I've done that and I, I think have um, followed the lead of some other editors when I wasn't sure what to do about it myself. Then we spoke about how poems go pretty much unchanged, but hymns are changed regularly. The more fundamental question, we would never dream of, of changing the words of Robert Frost or Christina Rossetti. In fact, Christina Rossetti, of course, in the bleak midwinter, or maybe we would, but it, my sense of it is a real poet, we don't change their words. But if it's, if it's a hymn, in other words, if the words were written as a hymn, then there's some kind of unspoken license to just, just do it, you know, a nip and tuck and a slice and dice. What is that? Is that fair? What I'm saying? I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I think um, hymns are unique in the way. Yes, they are poems, and I, I think. You know, we've already talked about some of these more skilled poets like Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley and so forth. You know, uh, John Newton and Steele, you know, really, really wonderful writers. Um, but hymns are, are unique in the way they're, they are generally intended to be sung and they're intended to be sung congregationally. And, and they also convey, they, they convey doctrine they convey Christian teaching. So, so, so oftentimes what happens is, you know, there's, there's a certain um, pastoral responsibility to be sure. And, and, and this is going to be different for every, every denomination and uh, perhaps even among different churches um, because of course, Christians don't always agree on on matters of doctrine and matters of Christian teaching, um, but but it becomes this pastoral decision of saying, can we use this hymn in good conscience? Does it fit with what we believe? And supposing we we find this hymn and most of it agrees with what we believe, but this one little part doesn't, then what do we do? Do we just not use it at all? Or, or can we change it so it, it fits with what we're trying to, to teach here? And that becomes the challenge with, with Christian hymnody. It is, it's, it's this um, very practical art where it's not just poetry for poetry's sake. Um, it, it's poetry for the purpose of conveying Christian teaching. And that, that's where it gets challenging. If, if we're trying to use a hymn... And, it, and the words in the hymn are coming into conflict with what we want our people to be singing or saying, then that's, that's where that choice pops up. You know, do we change it or we do we just not use it at all? Also indicative of the fluidity of hymn texts is the convention of borrowing. Sometimes when I'm perusing through old hymn collections, I see a phrase or a, even a quatrain that belongs somewhere else. For example, in Southern Harmony, for which I have read all of the text of the whole book, 
Um, there are two times where the phrase sin sick soul comes up, which we, of course, at least me, I associate that with the spiritual bomb in Gilead. So I'm, I'm so intrigued by, was it the white person who heard that phrase coming from the slave quarters or the other way around? I know there's no real answer to that, but I just think it's really interesting. And then the other thing I was noticing in Southern Harmony, there was a hymn, which hymnary credits to Richard Kempenfeld. Um, And one quatrain in there says, sweetest sound in seraph's song, sweetest notes on mortal tongue, sweetest carol ever sung, Jesus, Jesus, roll along. And of course, we as Baptists recognize that as part of the great physician by William Hunter, sweetest note in seraph's song. So clearly, William Hunter, born 100 years later, didn't really write that, but yet it's part of his hymn. So, I mean, I'm guessing that there, back in the day, it wasn't, there wasn't this sense of that doesn't belong to me, so I can't use it. But I think there was probably a free borrowing of, of things that one hears and just kind of claiming it as part of their own hymn. Do you have something to say about that? Yeah, um, I can speak specifically to there is a bomb in Gilead and then speak more broadly about the idea of borrowing. So uh, that, that particular spiritual, there is a bomb in Gilead, uh, it, it was uh, based on some older materials. So some of those words, for example, go, go back as far as John Newton. Um, so John Newton wrote a hymn um, called The Good Physician, and, and the first four lines are, How lost was my condition till Jesus made me whole. There is but one physician can cure a sin-sick soul. And in those those lines, that that hymn um, was often printed in the United States. And th- this is all on my website, by the way. If you go to hymnologyarchive.com and, and look up uh, There is a Bomb in Gilead, it's all on here, but I'll just to give you uh, uh, basics of it. So at one point, that hymn by John Newton was printed with a tune called Bomb in Gilead. So that it became this kind of this evolution of that hymn being associated with a certain tune, and then the text of that hymn getting um, getting getting rewritten in some ways until it got picked up um, on plantations and then kind of um, adapted into the spiritual called "There Is a Bomb in Gilead." So it, at least in that case, there there is a um, a footprint where we can actually go back through history and see these various elements of that spiritual and then how it, it kind of got um, re- rewritten and, and mashed up in, into uh, into what it became in, in terms of the spiritual. There is a bomb in Gilead. There, there's a, a more detailed, more academic explanation of that on my website. You have, you're welcome to look at that. Um, but, but yes, just in general, in general, um, yeah, there, there was a time when um, copyright law is was not then what it is now. Um, so there, for example, hymnal editors and hymnal compilers, uh, they they did uh, borrow and re and reuse hymns from other collections quite freely, and and then not just that, but but authors. Um, you know, did sometimes borrow ideas or phrases or, or other things from other people. In, in a way, I, I think in, in our modern society, we still wrestle with this. You know, it's still common to see uh, lawsuits, right, from these modern songwriters and modern composers where one person will speak up and say, oh, you stole my song. And then it becomes this question of, well, I mean, at what point, at what point are is this an homage or is this just borrowing a snippet or is this outright theft? Uh, and, and those cases are not always clear. Uh, and, and the same thing happens in hymnody. There, there are borrowings. There are, um, uh, there, there is homage, you know, um, uh, allusions to older texts, things like that. And where does it cross the line? Uh, sometimes that's subjective.
Still another related issue about hymns evolving was the early use of brackets. In the old hymnals, as we know, originally the hymnals didn't have a score in it. They were just words. Um, and I notice when I go back to the original uh, hymnals of Isaac Watts, for example, and others, there are oftentimes brackets, a lot of brackets. Now, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that means that that verse or verses can be left out. Is that true? Correct. Uh, in, in the older hymnals, that is the author's way of suggesting if this hymn is too long to be sung all at one time, these are the stanzas we I recommend you skip. So that that's kind of like the author the way of the author giving permission to say if this is too long, then skip these ones. Gotcha. And so I think this is probably one reason why in our modern hymn books, there's rarely ever more than four verses to a hymn, although they originally often had, like for example, Heavenly Joy on Earth, which of course is marching to Zion, that had ten verses originally. And now we might have four verses in the hymn book. So I'm guessing that those brackets kind of evolved into kind of like a, a convention probably of not, of not including those verses. Uh, I, I think that's probably part of it where, where, like you say, even in the time of Watts, you know, there was this kind of sense of, of how, how, how long is too long for a hymn to be sung congregationally. And I, I think that's going to mean different things to different people but but yeah, somewhere along the way, hymnal editors have kind of settled on this um, maximum length, usually of, of only four, um, maybe sometimes five. But I think it depends on the circumstance. And I, I think also there sometimes can be creative ways to um, sing longer hymns, perhaps by breaking, breaking them up. Um, I, I think, for example, of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, um, which comes from um, the the whole idea of it spans seven stanzas, right? But very very few churches are going to sing all seven. So, but the way to approach it, I mean, one way to approach it would be to just cut it down so only four are in the book. But another way would be to include all seven, and then and then use maybe I've heard of people doing this and I think I've done things like it myself. Like maybe for the month of December, we sing on the first Sunday of December, we sing one, two, and three. And then in the second Sunday of December, we sing one, four, and five. And then in the third Sunday of, of December, we sing one, six, and seven, or, or you can even break those up through the course of a whole service where maybe you start the service with one and two, and then at some point in the middle of the service, you sing three, four, and five. And then at the end of the service, you sing six and seven. So th there are different ways of doing this. But but ultimately, it does come down to, uh, how, again, how, how long is too long for people to sing all at one time. Finally, Chris settles an old score for me. Hymn for 242. Okay, this is something that comes up with, for me again and again. And you're going to finally give me the answer on this. And I'm going to just praise your name forever. So how many times with people like Wesley, I think Watts, and now whoever's 242, ye glittering toys of earth, which by the way, I love that title. But verse two is Jesus, Jesus. The thus is emphasize Jesus, the name that calms my fears. What's up with that? I mean, they didn't say the word as Jesus back in the day, right? Correct. There's, there's a term for this. And if you give me 10 seconds, I'm going to look it up for you because this, there's actually a word for this. Yeah. So this is an old poetic device. It's called a coriamb or coriambus. And it's this old poetic technique. Um, if, um, so usually this is done when a text, or you see this when a text is iambic. And that means the, the, the syllabic pattern is weak, strong, weak, strong, weak, strong, right? And, and I am, if you're talking about poetic technique, you've got iams, which are weak, strong. You've got trochees, which are strong, weak. So it's, now you're talking about the scenario where a hymn in iambic text 
sometimes will start with a trochaic foot. So it'll start strong weak. You know, Jesus, the name that charms our fears. That's from a hymn by Wesley. Um, and so there is a word for that. It's, it's called a coriam or coriambus. And, and I, I think it's done for emphasis. Um, sometimes I, I uh, yeah, I, I don't always know how I feel about that, you know, just because um, it, it does kind of interrupt the ear and uh, interrupts the sensibilities. But I, I think that's the point of why poets do that. And it happened. It, it it's done on purpose, and that's why it has its own term. Okay, so it's not just a, a case of people coming out after and being apologists for these people and saying, "Oh, that's why they must have done it." But in fact, you're saying that Wesley at the time thought it would be a great idea to say Jesus, the name that that was his intent. Yeah, I, I would say so because I, you know Wesley was was an excellent poet, and he knew what he was doing, and he understood these these concepts of. Watts as well. Yeah, Watts as well. M- meter and syllabic stress. He he knew all about that stuff. All those all those folks did. Um, so yeah, I, I would say it was a deliberate choice, and it, it does kind of stick out to the ear. And, and I suppose that's the point of it. And you know, come to think of it, I don't recall being accosted by it with any other word but Jesus. So maybe that's the sort of lightning rod word for this coriam because one would want to emphasize the name of jesus right i suppose so i I, uh, off the top of my head i can't think of any other great examples i I think it has been done in other ways but but that that one certainly is uh, one of the most famous examples well thank you because i never knew such a word existed and now i've got something because i just thought it it was a disappointment because i'm like Charles Wesley's amazing, and so was Isaac Watts. So did you just have a lapse of sanity at this one moment? What's going on here? But now I see what's going on here. So thank you, Chris. You're welcome. It, it is an actual poetic device, and it has a name. I love it. With sweet man, a hop, hop, round. 